0: Hey guys, this is, and the writer is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of writers and artists over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life and the industry, politics, composition, whatever. If you ask me, songwriters are some of the most worldly and intelligent people I've ever come across. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. Now, I'm co-producing this with my friend Joe London, who was nominated for a Grammy earlier this year for Best Country Song. He makes us sound like angels. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, go to Spotify and look up our playlist, And The Writer Is, or go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com people today.
0: Now, I'm not supposed to have favorites, but Simon Wilcox is one of my favorites. I bring her into sessions, whether it's a classic male artist whether it's a young female artist, it doesn't matter. Her lyrics know no bounds, and she knows how big of a fan I am of hers. So, I'm not going to get into any more details because I want you to enjoy this one. This is one of the most compelling conversations we've had, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of And the Writer Is is featuring Simon Wilcox. <laughs> Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's writer is one of my favorites in the business. She's penned number one songs and written with Hall of Fame level artists. And although those accolades might seem impressive, her story is absolutely captivating. All the way from Canada, this writer is the one I call when I need another top liner in the room because she can write with and for anyone. And the writer is Wiggy's mother... Simon Wilcox. Hi. Hi, Wiggy is your dog child.
1: Yes, my. Ba- How did he get my his fur name? Fur baby. Uh, he he came with that name from the shelter.
0: Oh, that's cute. I think Peter, my dog, he he came in with uh, I can't even remember, but totally different name. But I was like, nah. I, when I saw him, I was like, like, um, what's this, the line from Peter Pan or from Pan? It's like a. Uh, um, oh yeah, there you are, Peter. I think oh. I said that to him and I was like, I'm going to name him Peter.
1: That's so nice. Yeah, That's a cute. beautiful story. I don't have a story like that, but I did find out at a party recently that Sia actually found Wiggy. I thought it was Jesse Shatkin.
0: Sia found Wiggy? S-
1: Sia found Wiggy. So you have Sia's dog. I have Sia's dog. No, she found him. I guess Jesse asked her to send uh-huh. a dog like Joey because I love Jesse's dog. And then Jesse sent, sent me a picture of, wiggy and i went and adopted wiggy and then at a party later i was giving jesse the credit and he was like no see i found your dog
0: wow yeah see that's why we ask the hard-hitting questions (laughs) here at end the writer
1: okay um
0: so you asked me right before in seven words how would i describe you
1: yeah i'm scared okay go ahead
0: okay so uh, um i wrote um this so this would be my headline I said, artistic Canadian female songwriter conquers with humility. Oh, that's so nice. Seven words.
1: That's so generous.
0: It, well, I believe that.
1: I oh, Thank you.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you weren't always writing for Britney Spears and Enrique Iglesias. Side note, um, <laughs> my iPad auto-corrected Iglesias twice, which says how famous he is, which is kind of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you weren't always writing for those kinds of people, so i I, I feel like we should start um, kind of the beginning of the story just to give some background of of who you are. So you're born in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada.
1: Yeah, apparently my mom was dancing on a bar on a table in a bar, and she went into labor. That's the story. And what then, do you know what bar it was?: I don't, um, but then she
0: was literally dancing on a bar. When like she a dancing
1: there. on a table in a bar. Wow. Yeah.
0: And she just looked down and they're like... I don't
1: uh, know. It sounds gross. <laughs> but that's the story.
0: And that's then, crazy already. <laughs> uh, okay, so keep going. Let, I'll let you tell so someone So my the story. dad
1: had a gig at a biker bar. Your dad... That night. Right. So he was... Um, he said he was scared that if he didn't show up at the gig, they'd break his hands. He's a guitar player. So my dad went to his gig at the biker bar and my mom went to... Hamilton with um, the keyboard player from a Canadian country band called Prairie Oyster named Joan Besson. So Joan took my mom to the hospital and she gave birth to me. And then my dad, I guess, announced it on stage in the biker bar.
0: And they were like, you keep playing or we'll still break your hands. <laughs> I don't know. That's his story. I why mean, he wasn't there. your dad is a, is a famous Canadian folk.
1: Blues rocker.
0: Blues rocker.
1: There's an American David Wilcox and a Canadian David Wilcox. Uh The American David Wilcox is a folk musician. Right. The Canadian David Wilcox is a blues rocker.
0: Have you ever met the other?
1: No. But sometimes people think he's my dad, which is...
0: Incorrect. Neither here nor there. Right, exactly. So um, um, so you you live with your parents for three years and then... No. My mom
1: left when I was six months old. And then for the first three years of my life, my dad tried to take me on the road... Um, but he said I'd be the lump on the couch at parties. And then uh, he would just leave me with anybody who would take me. Wow. And then eventually, it was my mom's idea, there was a woman in Ottawa that he was having a relationship of some sort with. And she had the idea that um, this woman take me. And so my dad asked her to take me for a month. And then at the end of the month, she tried to give me back and he just refused to take me.
0: Wow, what's your first memory of all that?
1: I have a memory of being with my parents. My first, my earliest childhood memory, I think, is of being with both my parents in an apartment somewhere.
0: And the the woman that,
1: which is weird because I shouldn't have memories from before three, but I think I do.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So you're in Ottawa then? Yeah. Was it? Were you? Was he on the road, and then just happened to be like last straw I'm, I'm gonna just leave simon with what was her name mary with mary
1: who's a living person
0: yes exactly in the world yeah hi mary <laughs> so he leaves She's you now
1: in... an accountant she went back to school and studied oh, accounting cool. yeah
0: um were you exposed to i mean your mom was is also a musician right so you're like you were you were born as a musician of sorts, right? I mean, how were you exposed to music and you're dealing with life and I mean, what is the transition from being left in Mary's custody
1: in like geared to low income housing uh, in Ottawa?
0: What is that like? I mean, is there music instruments around? No. Yeah, right? there
1: were. There were tons. Mary had a drum kit. I think Mary always dreamed of being um, a, a rock musician and sometimes would put on Pretender's records at night and stand in front of the mirror and wow. lip sync and smoke weed and lip sync to Pretender's albums and she'd play drums and she'd invite um, some of the neighborhood teenagers would come over and they'd jam at Mary's house on Thursday nights but I was never allowed to touch the musical instruments in the house
0: How old were you when you could?
1: I never I was never allowed to. And you were touch there till you the were sixteen. Till I was right? sixteen, yeah.
0: So how did she? Um, what was she doing during the days? I mean, is she going to work? And you're? Are you going to school? I mean, I have this weird sort of. It's it's like somewhat sort of like not an orphanage situation, but kind of. I mean, like what is? How would you describe that?
1: Things were really hard for Mary because she was very sick. Oh wow! So, she was. This Beautiful, statuesque, blonde, um, but really struggled with her health and with poverty. So she worked at the local uh, convenience store when I was a kid and the health food store. Mm -hmm. And she got sick for a year and a half. She was in the hospital and she almost died. And during that period of time, I went to live with a woman who worked at the health food store with her. Crazy. And her husband, who's a cab driver at the time.
0: Was there any contact with your family?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd see my dad when he was um, coming through town playing shows. He'd play at a club called Barrymore's, okay. usually in Ottawa. So I'd see my dad then, and uh, I didn't see my mom a lot during that period of time.
0: When did you or start hear from seeing... Her a lot? When did you start realizing that you're, I mean... Your mom was an accomplished producer and your dad's an accomplished musician. When did you realize that that's what they were and that this was an unusual situation?
1: I knew who they were, but they were unusual people. Right. So I think I sort of accepted that the situation was unusual. And I think like a lot of kids who grow up in situations like that, I allowed myself to believe that I was special and that's why my circumstances were challenging, right. that makes sense. I think that's a story does. that a lot of kids tell themselves. And that this journey through my childhood was, was the beginning of me becoming the artist that I was going to be. And that this was what I had to live through in order to make the art I was going to make
0: when I grew up. When did you start? I, I must Which su- is
1: very grandiose, and I know that that's grandiose, but that's a survival. That's how a kid like me survives.
0: I mean, I imagine most artists have some. Of of, yeah, I mean, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Tr- you wouldn't try it. It's it's totally for you to grow up where you grew up and to be where you are right now. Means that throughout your whole life you've had delusions of grandeur. Yeah, I mean, I, still I think, do. yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't go away. That's the the whole motivation behind most writers and artists. I mean, when did you realize you had a talent? Because having written with you, I mean, obviously you're. As much of a poet as any lyricist I've ever worked with. So, my assumption is if you weren't playing instruments, that you were writing poetry or reading poetry. I mean, was she introducing you to literature? Yes. So,
1: the house was full of books.
0: When did you start creating art? If it wasn't that you were allowed to play the instruments, when were you starting to create poetry? When were you starting to realize, oh, yeah, I can do, I can paint pictures with words or I can. I can hear melodies even if I'm not touching these instruments.
1: Well, I was writing songs in my head.
0: But you weren't recording any of them? All
1: the time writing songs in my head. So in grade four or five, I made friends with a girl named Eileen Sinclair. And Eileen had one of those cassette players that has the record button. Sure. So I go over to her house sometimes after school, and I would have memorized all my songs in my head, and then I would record them. Mm -hmm. And at some point, my dad came through town, and I gave him my demo I must have been eight or nine years old, but I gave him my demo. But all my songs at that time were about women and alcohol, because that's what my dad's songs were about. So I thought that was just what you wrote songs about, was women and booze.
0: Wow. Well, do you remember what your first song was?
1: No. No. I just remember.
0: <laughs> what?
1: Something about come over sometime, drink some wine. I don't know. Something some really like, embarrassing and bad. <laughs> yeah,
0: still probably could be used in something. You know? <laughs> so he goes in and he listens to it. Did he Did he comment on it? Or was he, he encouraging?
1: It. I know he kept it.
0: Yeah. Did you ever feel like, oh, yeah, you know what? I want to go on the road with you again to, to your parents. Or was it like once so at that point you're like, because uh, you're trying to define yourself. So you're writing these poems and songs. And yet, you're still giving the, the the tape to your dad. You know,
1: I worshipped my dad.
0: Yeah, when did you? I had reala- his
1: poster on my wall. I wore his t shirts. I thought yeah. my dad was everything to me. Like, I think that's true for a lot of little girls. Uh-huh. They think their dads are like gods.
0: So, uh, when did you? Um, when did you realize he wasn't a god?
1: I'm I'm still figuring that out. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's it's really it's it's a weird thing. You're to love someone so much and unconditionally the way you love a parent. Mm. They always have a doorway into your emotional world, and um, and they they can hurt you in a way that nobody else can. Right. So, yeah, when did I realize my dad uh wasn't a god um i don't know maybe when I was a teenager, maybe when I was like thirteen or something and he yeah
0: so you're you're growing up in Ottawa, mm-hmm. and in your teens you i know at sixteen you you leave sixteen you leave home, or? yeah,
1: I started a band maybe when I was like thirteen i was I was in like a punk band and then so i was making music and
0: were you playing an instrument at that point
1: yeah well my uh my aunt had bought me a guitar at a pawn shop okay so um i
0: when was that
1: was learning some basic chords um maybe when i was like 11
0: okay so you could touch your instrument my you instrument. just couldn't touch none instrument. of
1: the good instruments right. or no amplifiers no because there right. were amps in the living room it was really like a Kind of rock and roll house, a huge vinyl collection.
0: I mean, you must have been exposed to all kinds of, in a way, really good music.
1: Yeah, amazing. You know? Well, some, yeah, sure. Like, yes.
0: What was the hesitation? Some of it wasn't good music?
1: Some of it was just conventional, what you'd expect, like Led Zeppelin, which is amazing, but you'd expect that.
0: Right.
1: Um, or Hendrix, you'd expect that. But then, yeah, there was... Um, Elvis Costello and David Bowie and Patti Smith.
0: Yeah, that'll make you write good lyrics.
1: Doctor John
0: and all those people wrote lyrics that were not normal
1: and also not melodically conventional in any
0: way. Well, that explains
1: it explains a lot. I know.
0: Well, no, because we, you know, we have these <laughs> debates in every in a lot of our co-writes where you and I are sitting in a room and I'm I'm thinking math, 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 and like. Symmetry and all these things, you're like, ah, it's not all about that. Some of it's emotional, some of it's lyric based, and and to allow a pop song to get out that has the depth of a Bob Dylan record, you know, is it's really hard for a writer. It's different as an artist, I think, but it's hard for a writer to let the lyrics sing and you're always, you know, you that's why I was asking about the poetry. You know, because it feels like when you come in, it's like the poetry matters, the the concept matters, but it would make sense if those are the. Not to say that they, you know, obviously the concept always matters, but I mean, the lyric is king in your world.
1: Okay, so here's what you have to imagine. Okay, this small Simon living in this house in the world, where I, I really have no parents. I listen to those records on headphones on vinyl. And I felt less lonely. Right. And I think that those records saved my life. Many, many, many times over. Mm -hmm. Because I felt this kinship with the artists who were singing about their own loneliness and their own struggle. And I think that I've devoted my life to trying to give that back in some small way.
0: Sure. Have you ever met any of those artists?
1: Oh, on Valentine's Day recently vince took me to an elvis costello concert
0: yeah.
1: and he got me a front row ticket and um every time that declan mcmanus would walk up to the front row i would wilt yeah <laughs> like
0: yeah i mean you had a personal connection
1: i would hide he was just laughing at me the whole time i have no desire to meet any of those people
0: yeah, but I think you know. As I'm mis- sure, there are people that ha- that have that have come up to you and thanked you for the fact that you spoke to them.
1: Sure. Yes. You know,
0: I can imagine that if you ever have the opportunity, that those people would really appreciate hearing how influential they were. Because I think we're all writing in the, in a weird sort of way in a vacuum, and then you find out that somebody in Ottawa is listening to it, <laughs> and you're giving them you're giving them an outlet that matters. You know. You forget about that. You forget that these songs actually matter, or that the music matters. Sometimes you get in in your own head, and it's and it's really hard to. You're you're having a good time that day, and you're writing that song or whatever. But you you forget that those songs travel and end up in in the headphones of somebody who's struggling in a in in an apartment or a house, whatever. In Maybe
1: Ottawa. somebody who needs them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at sixteen, you leave and you start. Traveling the world, right? No, or something like that. I left. I tried to finish high school at the time. I'm basing this off of. By the way, looking up, <laughs> <laughs> looking up some press stuff from like from your first records and trying to find like anything old school about you. That yeah. I I knew a lot of this story, but I mean it's it's really interesting to see what's out there versus what's real. So <laughs> correct me along the way, but um, I saw you know just stuff about you traveling and and I I know we've talked about drugs and muggings and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So how you're at 15, 16?
1: 16. 16, I I moved out into like a house with a bunch of anarchists and they uh-huh. were all at least 10 years older than me.
0: So you were you you quit school.
1: No, I was still in school at the time okay. and I my dad gave me some money, gave me $400 a month. Okay. And my rent was $176 to rent my bedroom and then I tried to go to High school, but I all of a sudden had a lot of trouble in school because all of a sudden I was never I was always good at English and you know drama. (laughs) No, (laughs) okay, shut up. (laughs) Um, But I uh, I started to have a lot of trouble with authority because I felt like I was dealing with adult things and I hated being condescended to at school. So I, I used to
0: always say that the teachers who treated me like a child, I hated. The teachers who treated me like a student, I adored. Yeah, so, and so many, so many of those people would. It's sort of like an outlet to be authoritarian. And it's like I, just because I am young doesn't mean that I am stupid. It just means that I haven't learned it yet because I've only lived for fifteen years. Give me a fucking break, you know. And that was like so. Uh, yeah, I
1: felt old. At that point in my life.
0: Yeah, you'd already lived a lot on your own.
1: But I did, I mean, I had good teachers as well, Mr. Gamble. My English teacher was really good. Nice. Um, So I dropped out of school because I couldn't do it anymore. And uh, my dad suggested that I move to Toronto to try to have a relationship with him. Okay. So I moved to Toronto to try to have a relationship with my dad and it didn't really work. Did you... I moved into an apartment, but he helped me.
0: What was that like? The, was it sort of when he says he wants to have a relationship with you, it's sort of like let's let's meet once every other week or something? Or was it like let's see each other every day and build a rapport? I mean, what is that? what does it consist of to say?
1: I don't know what sort of expectations I had. Yeah, and I don't know what he thought he could offer, but it just didn't it didn't work and i ended up uh getting a job in where some restaurants waiting tables and finishing high school by correspondence uh just sitting at the library and doing that in the city yeah in toronto Mm -hmm. and being really lonely because i had never i didn't know anybody there really and i it's hard to make friends at that age if you're not in school. Sure, a lot of the people who were waiting tables were, uh, again, older than me. So, I did that, and then I got um, I got an old uh, four track uh, tape machine, a Tascam tape machine from my dad.
0: That thing changed my life. The the little grayish blue, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The grayish blue one, yeah. yeah sure. And
1: I just would make four track recordings. Well, out many more tracks obviously, because I would, you know, bounce the...
0: Right, okay. um, And you're at this point 17 or something like
1: that? Yeah, 17, 18. Yeah. And then uh, I had a boyfriend at the time who was really nice to me. He was a law student who was also waiting tables to put himself through law school. He lived in my apartment building. And he said, "Uh, you need to do something with your life. You can't just (laughs) sit in the dark and make...
0: Make music. These
1: weird recordings. Little does he know, know.
0: That, that like <laughs> that you're still doing that right now. You're still in the dark <laughs> in oh. some dark room most days <laughs> yeah. writing songs. At least though you've got a bunch of friends with you. But
1: he said you could go to art school. He said you're a really good painter. You could go to art school. Why don't you put your portfolio together and I'll I'll take you to whatever. You they had this thing where you could like lay out your portfolio and the art teachers would walk around and so I got into art school. And then I went to art school for a couple of years and they had a program where you could go to Florence. And the whole time I had this feeling like if I couldn't make music, I would die. If I couldn't be this thing. I knew that I was in art school, but I... Be this
0: thing, what does that mean?
1: Be this... If I couldn't realize the human being that was inside of the shell that I was performing my life as a visual art student because I could do it. I could kind of fake it. I was good at it and it was easy. But I didn't have the... It's not even the passion for it. There were just people that I went to art school with where their, their work was just transcendent.
0: Yeah.
1: And there was no way of faking that. And I felt like maybe there was a shot that I had that in music. But
0: you didn't have it as a painter.
1: I didn't think I did. Or maybe I just wasn't willing to work hard enough to, but Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I had it as a painter. Um, Although I do think my embroidery of vintage gear (laughs) is pretty, no, I'm joking, sorry, sidebar. Um, So I went to Florence and I spent a year in Florence studying art and art history and busking. Okay. I went out on the street so and just played my songs. With a guitar? With an acoustic guitar. And I would play for about 45 minutes and I'd make enough money to get all my friends drunk. And then we'd go and we'd get drunk. And it was so terrifying for me to walk to the piazza with my acoustic guitar, open my guitar case and just go. Mm-hmm. And my songs were about... My life was profoundly autobiographical, awkwardly honest.
0: What did people think when they heard this girl on the street singing English and saying stories about abandonment? Did they understand?
1: I think there were tourists who understood, but I comforted myself because the lyric was so intimate for me. I comforted myself by thinking, oh, they can't understand English. They totally could. But that's that was sure. how I justified it, and then I went back after that year. I went back to uh I went back to Toronto and two things happened. One of my girlfriends told an engineer at a recording studio that her friend had a bunch of songs she should come in and record, and I went into the studio and sang my songs and recorded them, and he took me really seriously. so that happened, and then also. My dad's girlfriend at the time was letting me stay in her apartment. In Toronto? In Toronto, and her apartment burned down.
0: Not with, like, with things that you had in it? Yeah. Oh, wow.
1: And I realized that...
0: What a metaphor.
1: I realized that the art form, that the song could exist in equally as... Pow- as powerful a form in many different places at the same time. But, you know, if you see a reproduction of um, Monet's Water Lilies, it looks like cliched dentist's office artwork. Yeah. But you see it in real life and it blows your mind. Right. Yeah. But the song to me suddenly was this more effective canvas. mm
0: yeah, it's in a weird sort of way people tend to be more um uh, when they see something live and it doesn't represent the recording of it mm-hmm. they they feel like that's the reproduction that failed, you know. And when someone can sort of reproduce it live the way it sounds like in the recording, they, then they feel like, "Oh, they went and saw the version of that live, but they still go back to the recording." That's really an interesting way to look at the medium for sure. And you, but you didn't really have any experience at that point recording in the studio, right?
1: Well, no, I just had, maybe had my first experience with this uh, engineer who helped me out. Right. Um, but so no. you
0: bring in a bunch of the songs from Italy at, uh, from yeah. Italy at the time, and, you're, and you just, let's, I don't know, let's go and, and see what this is? Or was he like, this is, this is huge, you know, I'm, I want to go and we're, I'm going to send this to all the record labels. I, I mean, like, what? Because what, at this point, you go from singing on a street in another country, yeah. you come home, the apartment burns down. Yeah. And that's the same time you're recording this.
1: So at first that point, a bunch of songs. So the, I was staying in my dad's girlfriend's apartment. So th- at that point, my dad didn't want me to stay at his house and didn't really want me ar- around, like, so he called my aunt and said, can Simon sleep on your couch for a while? I had no money. Everybody knew he, that I had no he, money.
0: What was his excuse to you?
1: He actually didn't tell me. I just found out later that he called my aunt and said, can you take Simon?
0: But you still there was still no explanation. It was just sort of that.
1: But I'd come back from Europe and I was just broke and had nothing and mm-hmm. was, you know, couch surfing. So I went to my aunt's at that point and uh, stayed there.
0: Were you still with the law student?
1: No, no,
0: yeah.
1: no. We broke up long, long time ago.
0: Right. So you go then, and you're with, you're at the your aunt's house, and yeah. you, and that's when you meet the engineer.
1: Uh, probably before that, but around the time that I went and started, uh, that was around the time that I started actually really r- recording music and put together a band and started touring and playing folk festivals and made my first real record. Which was a folk record called. I'm not going to repeat what it was called because I'm shy. But
0: the ma- mongrel. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The lyric was: "I am a
1: mongrel of love. Yeah. I am a mutt, a mutt, a mutt. I am a born again virgin. I'm a recovering slut. Oh
0: wow! It was not about me. What it was, was it about, about someone I knew. Mm-hmm. And it was that it, was the lyric. It's solid though. I mean, like, it's smart. It's, I mean, you can tell that this is not, you're not writing songs to be famous. You're writing songs to get something off your chest. Those are very different kinds of artists. You know, at that point, you're like, I'm going to write something that matters. Yeah. I'm going to write lyrics that move the needle, you know, and if the songs go somewhere, that's fine. I mean, at this point, you're going in. How soon after you recorded this, were you like, I'm going to pursue this as a profession? It was right never
1: a choice. Oh, yeah. It was like my body was the shell, mm-hmm. and I was always trying to break out of the egg shell, but it was always who I was.
0: Was it, your aunt supportive of you doing this?
1: Nobody in my family believed I could do it.
0: Yeah. Just because, me. I just hadn't met you yet.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> I think they... They thought it was a pipe dream. My aunt was lovely to let me crash on her couch, but I, yeah. I, nobody, I mean, I, yeah, it's fine.
0: I mean, I imagine that's, you know, you're in the middle of Canada. It fueled me. You're in, and no offense to, and I know we actually have a lot of listeners in Canada, and obviously the, some of the biggest artists in the world are Canadian. You know, The Weeknd, yeah. Bieber, and Celine Dion, and there's like a list of, of, you the best in Michael Bublé. The best in almost every <laughs> genre somehow seems to be Canadian. So I don't know why. You know, I, I don't mean it to say that Canadians shouldn't be successful, but I think the idea of growing up not in the middle of Los Angeles is a giant um, red X on your you know against you to begin with. I agree. You know, and and you're trying to go and be heard by recording demos at some engineer studio is, you know, the odds are infinitesimal, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's really like, it's, it's a shocking achievement to, to even get to a point of, I'm going to record music in a small town, let alone say, I'm going to go and, and release this music and then see what happens. I mean, when you're done with it, and you, are, are you starting to just hand out demos and then it spreads, or what happens?
1: Well, first I made these cassette tapes that had I just duplicated my ID. Mm-hmm. So it was my ID card, and then you had this cassette tape with some songs on it. And like then, your driver's
0: license kind of thing. Exactly. Like yeah, I yeah. didn't have a driver's license, but right. you know, like yeah, only ID card, like right.
1: subway with the picture, yeah, know, subway pass or whatever. And um, I I made T-shirts as well with my ID on them, which we uh-huh. never do now. But anyway, I just. Did my you do social it? security number? Yeah, exactly.
0: Did you do it as like? I mean, were you actually making the t-shirts or were you? Did you? Yeah, I you...
1: went to like a place where they press. Yeah, the things and you could come with a photograph and sure. make the decal. Yeah, well, I mean, I was an art student, right at that point, a graduate. But yeah,
0: so you go and you you release this first music, and what happens?
1: Yeah, but everything I did led to something new, and something led to an opportunity. Every show I played, I met someone, I got an agent, I got a, you know, things just happened. How much
0: did, I know we've talked about this before, that Mm -hmm. at the time, people just kept saying, you know, David Wilcox's daughter.
1: Well, here's, and this was the worst part, is that I was making music and I was getting press, but I was also telling the truth about my life up until that point. Right. Because I was angry and uh, damaged. And so it was horrible for my dad (laughs) to have all these articles come out about... Yeah. You know.
0: And you're living on your aunt's couch at this time? uh Uh-huh. What did your aunt think about all that?
1: My aunt is really gentle. Mm Mm-hmm. And amidst a family of fierce, complicated monsters Mm -hmm. my aunt is very gentle and forgiving and understanding yeah so i just think she
0: let it go these things are getting out there and you're finally able to tell your story yeah so
1: how much of it was uh i mean the fact that my dad was already somebody so it was news that i was making music i don't know i mean the my career progressed as an artist, to a point where I had a top 10 hit in Canada
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I had a pop career, within, and where people would go up to my dad, or my dad said that people would go up to him and say, I love your daughter's music.
0: So, so there's a little bit of a gap there, though. I hope from that like, there
1: was some quality to it, that it wasn't just coasting on my dad's, riding on my dad's coattails. Well, but no, he, I he mean, does, clearly,
0: like the name, even just. He has a song about that, it's
1: called Professional Victim.
0: When did that come out? I mean, what? I don't want to go into uh, <laughs> people can look up when all these songs come out and all that stuff, but without, you know, when you come out with Mongrels of Love,
1: Mongrel, Get mongrel singular, singular. Yes. One, one Mongrel. <laughs> the
0: only one Mongrel. And then, you know, you're talking about four years later, you come out with the pop music, right? Yeah. So you're talking about at, at that time, you're, you spend four years there going from folk music to not so folk music. I mean, that first single that does really well is, um,
1: is terrible. We can acknowledge that. Because I made it with friends of mine who I love and I still work is, with.
0: This is Mommy's and Daddy's. Yeah,
1: song Mommy's Jennifer. and Daddy's. Yeah, that's a, ter- it's a terrible know, song.
0: <laughs> but it's but it, 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 <laughs> As he, he mumble through it. Yeah. But, you know, that comes out, and that's clearly opposite of the kind of music that your dad was doing or has ever done. Is that, was that by choice or was it like, I want to write music that's cool right now and this is about me?
1: No, it was this, okay. So, so I made the, uh, Mongrel of Love record and then I wrote this other record that never came out called Annie C, which was about a girl I'd known growing up who was a, t- a teenage prostitute who, whose body was found by a janitor on a Monday morning, Wow. uh, behind a school. Um, because I always thought there was very little difference between the two of us. Oh, wow. That I that could have been my, my body. So so I wrote that record and and then and I started to get press and people based on the very first record on the Mongrel record started asking me to co-write. And I started having success with those co-writes. Who is, who is asking? So, you? These amazing artists from Montreal. It started with uh, an artist named Joran, who's a cellist and sings in a made-up language, and is a highly respected m- musician. before
0: Cigarose.
1: Who t- she travels the world and plays with symphony orchestras and and so we had some success with her song, and then uh, a band named Projet Orange, another band from Montreal, um, like a pop rock band, but. We wrote a song together, and that went to number one at Much Music on the Much Music Countdown, which is totally meaningless in America, but, but for me That's it was... That's a
0: TRL kind of thing, isn't it? Right, exactly. Yeah.
1: So, so this is happening, and I had just made this um, folk record that people recognized that there was, there was a quality to the songs. Selling a little or a lot?
0: and Airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com host and when you do that by the way it's like we're it opens up the doors some of the some of the writers that we've talked to have been the the kinds that do these side projects that are really intricate and really interesting and are not made to sell records. And those are the ones that then the, the people who want to sell records they go to that person because like there's an authenticity to it. you know you were putting your heart on your sleeve and so every artist that realizes wow, if I had some of that emotion in my songs, I would be much better you know it, it would help my career. So it makes sense that you put out something that's that honest, that all, there's a trail of people who want to co-write, so it's cool that that happened organically I mean, did, were, they were just discovering it on their own, it wasn't like you had a publisher pushing that kind of stuff, right? No.
1: I was just an indie artist and um, and opportunities like that started happening and then because Montreal was really a hot scene at the time I mean, it still is, but at the time it was really hot, uh, people in Toronto started to hear about me and then A friend of mine was developing a band called Three Days Grace. Mm -hmm. And so then I went in and I worked with Three Days Grace. And then that, I had my first success in the US with that band. And I realized that I loved. That was a
0: really big band, too. I realized that I
1: loved co writing, I loved it.
0: And this is while you're doing that. This is. I
1: was an artist. At this one moment in time, I'm in Canada and I have my songs on the radio. And. Three Days Grace and Project Range. But anyway, that's not the point. So let's rewind for a second. So I make the folk record and I get a development deal from Warner, Canada. And they send me to Los Angeles where I work with a record producer for a year who I end up dating. So I'm from... I'm a total hick. I'm in LA. I have no money. He got all the money from the development deal, went straight to him. So I'm living in his house. He's very, very dirty, very, very big, scary house. Living in his house. At some point, I have a total breakdown and I go back to Canada and I quit music.
0: Timing wise, you you go, you just had done Mongrel of Love, you get the development deal you come here or did you already write that one album that was about the girl or was that the album what was it I that you were that writing album,
1: with this the big the big the record that was going to get me the deal the big deal that right. was going to make me a superstar or whatever the ridiculous ideas
0: did you have to date this guy
1: did i have to date the producer yeah you know <laughs> There's this thing that happens when you're a young woman in the music industry or when I was a young woman in the music industry where a lot of people try to sleep with you, (laughs) especially the bottom feeders.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Like when when you're working at a certain level with people who take their job seriously and are professionals and care about their reputations and care about their work generally speaking you are treated with kindness and respect most of the people i work with now treat me with nothing but kindness and respect Mm. and i'm so fortunate to have worked my way up from the bottom of the swamp to where Mm. the flowers grow Mm. but down at the bottom of the swamp there are some nasty creatures and anyone who's made it regardless of gender has had encounters with those nasty creatures
0: what was it like
1: confusing i was just confused so it makes sense that i ran away Uh i went back to canada i actually ran away like in the middle of the night went to the airport slept at the airport had a voucher for a ticket had a voucher for a ticket on um and used the voucher got on the plane went back to canada and then at that point became an insurance salesperson Travel insurance. I did. I wrote my exam in accident and sickness insurance and started selling insurance at a travel agency.
0: So you go off the plane, you go to your aunt's place. Yes. And I start I'm rebuilding back.
1: my life. I quit music.
0: I, music is music not is cool.
1: I don't want to ever see those people, deal with those people again. I never want to feel like that
0: again. And the people at Warner. They just, you know, they're used to people kind of coming and going. And I
1: mean, the ANR guy said he lost his job because of me.
0: But uh, so he, bl- yeah.
1: But I don't see another, how that's another, possible. Another
0: guy, another guy <laughs> blaming another girl, yeah, for for their own problems <laughs> for probably the fact that he's just not a good ANR guy. Right? And well, then-
1: now he runs a big um, prize like fund for music that's super hipster. But yeah.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Does he recognize how successful you are right now? I don't know, but maybe. Oh, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> no. oh, so, um, you go and you you end up. Um, you're now selling insurance, and are you now making money? For, that's probably the first time you're really making money. Then, right?
1: Well, yeah. Well, I started making some money there, but then I got a job. Uh, I got a job at the YWCA as well, and. Um, working on this initiative called Week Without Violence. So I was able to do some activist work and work at the insurance.
0: Well other than the lack of music, that sounds like Thing. like, you know, working in advocacy and you know, there was probably some fulfillment out of that.
1: For sure. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So then something weird happens. What? Which is that some songs that I had written with a friend of mine in his basement, get me a record deal.
0: How does that happen? Because people are like begging for record deals, and here you are begging not to get a record deal.
1: It was music I didn't like,
0: Mm. that
1: I wasn't proud of. So somehow in my story, it made sense that that that...
0: but this now has to represent you it's again. A very,
1: <laughs> a, it's a complicated wow. story that's not that interesting that leads to, I had a record deal. And making music I didn't like, singing music I didn't like, and that's what was successful
0: for me. Which and is I probably, couldn't turn down
1: the record deal because I was this, I was me. Yeah. How could I say no, well, even though i quit music?
0: Sure. I know. be careful what you wish for a she little bit, She pulled
1: right? me back in.
0: Who's she? Music. Oh. Yeah.
1: That beautiful, cruel mistress. She would not let me go.
0: Yeah. And the label, which, which label was that at the time?
1: Uh, it was BMG and then it became Sony BMG. Right.
0: And they go and they release it and you start killing it. Well, no, yeah, it was no, a turntable
1: like... hit. It was a turntable hit. Nobody knew who I was, okay. but they just knew the song. So I would play the song to a crowd and they would go, oh, that's her song. They put two and two oh, together, right? And I didn't like it, so I was judging the audience.
0: But some of it, like I think, you know, not to <laughs> go through like, like mother, you know, Mother's Ruin is kind of my jam. Like that's like a real that's like, later, okay? Because that's like the Pretenders to me. That's like that's later. You know, like that's like super exciting.
1: Okay, so now this gets interesting. No so. offense to
0: the earlier stuff, but something about like a lot of the solo stuffs really like. I'm surprised that you say that.
1: No, that's Maybe. A, that's a okay. whole other record and okay. that's actually interesting. So so I'll skip ahead. So mm-hmm. I made some money making that music that I didn't like. Right. And I took that money and I moved to Liverpool. Oh. And I lived in a bedsit in Liverpool and uh was introduced to the rhythm section of the of Echo and the Bunnymen. And I took all the money that I made and I made a record that I loved, and it's a rock record, and Mother's Ruin is a song on that
0: record. That's awesome,
1: and that record is called "The Charm and the Strange," and that was- I like
0: how I like how confident you're saying this. That's because that's the album that you believe in, and you're like, you know, my Real love and hmm, nice and Dirties. and then you go and you're like, "Fuck yeah!" I went to to Liverpool and I recorded "Echo" and the Bunny Man. Well, it wasn't well, gun the Bunny, bunny it was Man. There, yeah, it was <laughs> <laughs> it was a few a few bunnies.
1: Yeah. Um, So And I made this record at Parr Street, which is a beautiful studio in Liverpool. And I really made a record that I loved. And I got a deal for it in Canada uh, thanks to a a friend of mine named Gary Slate. Helped me get a deal for it. And uh, it came out and nobody cared. Because you can't go from being lame to being cool. Interesting. I don't think. I think you can go...
0: You can go cool to being lame that cool to lame yeah.
1: but I don't think you can go as an adult I think you can have a career as a kid and then become cool like yeah. but I don't think they forgive adults the they the audience the world the listeners of it's music. weird that
0: when I'm Canadian I'm really happy <laughs> that Canadian I'm really happy that um I didn't grow up with my first band was right, right when MySpace was coming out. My mm-hmm. first like, a record deal happened right when MySpace was coming out. Yeah, And everything before it, I am stoked that there's very little history on. Because, uh, I mean, there, there are mistakes all over the place. Yeah. And it's, it's just it versus right now when you're out of the womb, you're like, I can be famous, so I'm going to go on YouTube. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. just slow up. You slow up and go through make a lot of mistakes before you go to YouTube. Let YouTube happen on your ninth album and then then you're like, "Ah, this is what I want the world to see." But it's so hard, you know, when in it, when people know who you are. But the thing is like you have more streams on I mean, there's more listens on the, you know, the the newer music you had than the older is it just because of timing? I mean, I'm surprised that you say that people weren't listening to it. It seems like they were used in in a few different things. They were used in soundtracks and stuff like that, right?
1: I, honestly, I have no idea.
0: Yeah. Can I say something about Liverpool? Yeah. Your mother came up under George Martin in some way, right?
1: Yes, she was the first uh, woman record producer in the British Record Producers Guild under George Martin.
0: So when you're in Liverpool...
1: hmm
0: did you connect those dots? Was there some sort of like I can do this in this town? Is there a reason why is no. there is there any coincidence in No,
1: I went to Liverpool specifically. Oh, I I love Liverpool. My mother lived in London and had Northern England is really very different.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Yeah. So
0: really blue collar. And we weren't yeah.
1: we weren't close at that time. So and she wasn't making music, I don't think, either at that time. She's a visual artist now and very is very accomplished. But uh, I was just obsessed with Liverpool because it felt somehow like everybody who wanted to be famous went to London. But everybody right. who made music because they had to, because they had no choice, because that was the only way that they could cope. Yeah was still in liverpool and and it feels like there's this this resonant ripple effect of the work that was done there that makes people believe that music can change the world that that pop music that rock music can change the world when you live around the corner from penny lane which i did it feels like music is important right. in a way that it didn't feel like it was important in Ottawa, in the, not in the same way. Or, or there was this feeling of that people were jaded or more jaded.
0: So, you go and you finally record this music that you believe in. I'm exhausted
1: right now. How did all of this stuff happen? I feel tired just talking about it. I know.
0: All of it. I love it, though. Okay. So, you finally record the. We can get you more coffee.
1: No, no, I'm good. I'm good. Okay, cool. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't mean it that way.
0: No, I know. No, I mean, but this is what's cool. People have asked us a few times recently to be like, oh, can you talk about songwriting process and about how you write each song? And, we can get into that, but that's yeah. a whole other thing. To me, like what's really compelling in the music industry are the unsung heroes, and the hero's journey that you've gone on. And we, I, I mentioned that a lot is really is it really inspiring that you you go and you're you're raised in a in all all odds are against you. I mean, it, regardless, even especially considering the um the genetics that you you know (laughs) your your history you went and you go in your your the struggle is so real and that's why you're still here and if you didn't go through this struggle and it wasn't exhausting you probably wouldn't be here anymore had you not, you could have. You could still be selling insurance, but you you didn't. You saved up that money, and you go to Liverpool and you record this. That's imp- an important story, to me. Like that is just the beginning, and I love that it's exhausting. I hope that the people who listen to this realize that, like that exhaustion is is the fuel that that is why you're going to go to some session after this to write, and why I am too. Yeah, because I'm going to feel. You know, it's like it's because that's exciting
1: yeah it's you know, yeah,
0: anyway, you go you finished that recording I in Liverpool, that record. I and people back. don't want to hear it, but you're proud of it, I bet.
1: yeah, I come back to Canada. I finish it with again with uh some friends of mine um and uh we release it, and it is a total flop, an epic flop. it's a f- nobody, nobody cares right so and then around the same time, I get sued by a former colleague and i am back in the poor house i'm living in another rooming house with a lock on the door and i have to get a job to pay my legal bills and also i'm being audited because my income went up stratospherically from like six thousand dollars a year you know and then crashed again so now i'm living back in this little padlock on the door and i get a job answering phones at an accounting firm in the mornings and then in the afternoons i write songs now we're at 10 years ago 10 years ago i am answering the phone roshwork and roshwork how may i help you every morning and some of my friends would call just to hear me say it and then laugh and hang up Yeah. yeah so uh so that I happens. expect the next time
0: I call you that that's how you answer. By the way, I'll be offended if you don't.
1: So, so that happens. Writing songs every afternoon, and I, and I'm signed to EMI, uh, music publishing.
0: How did you get that?
1: So I got signed to a publishing deal,
0: off of the music from Liverpool.
1: No, early days. Okay. Off of the around the time that the three days grace cut. Happened. Okay. I got signed to a pub deal, and my publisher is amazing, or was amazing. He's still an amazing person. So I'm signed to EMI uh, for publishing. So they reach out, and they say there's a manager in L.A. who's looking for somebody like you. Why don't you send her some music?
0: Dan Patel? No. Oh.
1: Her name was Jenny Price. Okay. And a whole bunch of people had sent Jenny music, but Jenny said, I like simon's songs and so emi generously helped me move from my bedroom in a rooming house to
0: the sportsman's lodge who is so some guy (laughs) you're you're contacting the publishing company being like hey this i have a day job right now but are you pushing them or is it just that they're like they're just a fan of yours and, and they're just like you know what why don't we send Simon's music to this random manager? In LA? Yeah. Just like I don't, super, like, to them, it's just like casual. They're just going through, they get some email or some note being like, hey, do you know any writers? And they're like, oh, Simon could be good. Yeah. they and sends already... sends it. And then it's like, meanwhile, it's changing your life behind your back.
1: Yes. And they already had writers in LA that they were helping out. Right. Like, try to break into the LA scene or whatever. So I don't know why, but Jenny just liked my songs. And. Moved me down here, and I, 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 Then I just worked really hard. Yeah. Then I started over for the, like fifth time in my life. <laughs> and
0: you were renting. You were in an apartment in LA then.
1: No, they put me at the Sportsman's Lodge initially. Oh,
0: right, 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 in the valley.
1: And then a friend of mine called me, and you probably you
0: probably met like there are. Every artist that, that, that <laughs> travels through L.A., their bus goes there. I saw the
1: buses, yeah. Yeah,
0: because yeah. it's like the only place that allows you to park tour buses. Oh, I
1: didn't know that.
0: Yeah, so I, it's every my friends that tour through L.A., especially country artists, like they stay at Sportsman's Lodge. So if you ever want to meet artists in L.A., just sit in the parking lot.
1: I should have. <laughs> that's what I should have done. Yeah,
0: exactly. So you're staying at the Sportsman's Lodge?
1: Yeah. And,
0: uh... Uh, and then Breed Carolina shows up? I mean, you jump up from like, okay, well, not, and then here's this band, and how do you end up working with you know you switch from Jenny or Jenny's looking for a man- she's she's a manager looking for a writer, she's not looking to manage you,
1: yeah, she was looking to manage oh. me she moved me down oh, here see. and started representing me okay and got me meetings with people and got me sessions, and then she quit the music business mm. um and then uh Amanda Berman helped me immeasurably because i was an emi writer even though i hadn't been signed by her she helped me a huge amount and then dan patel found me who's my current manager through my songs
0: yeah
1: he heard the songs that ian wrote with me and i guess liked them enough to want to back yes liked me liked them enough to want to meet me and then we met and he did the cleverest thing that I've ever seen a manager do. He never asked me if I wanted to be managed by him. He just started managing me. Yeah. So that I had to come to him and say, "Um, where do we yeah. stand? What yeah. is this?"
0: Smart. If so, you, Amanda hooks you up with Amanda, the, your publisher hooks you up with Ian, mm-hmm. the producer yeah. who's working on Breathe Carolina. I assume that's still like the first thing that you start getting cuts with. That's it, because they were they had a top forty, a couple of top forty hits. That's your first like. American top forty song right is through breathe Carolina yes. am I skipping I think, steps or no, am I, I, am I right. I'm on the right page
1: yeah, I had actually uh co-written Breathe Carolina's previous two singles with my longtime collaborator uh Mike Green
0: and then for the next like uh the next five years you're just riding around you've you've got Dan Patel who's now starting to hustle for you and you go from that to well Nick
1: actually Ross um during that period of time, I worked with Josh Groban and Patula Clark and Walk Off the Earth and had a single with The Ready Set. So I was doing
0: stuff. But no, during those five years, you're like, I'm... I'm... I was
1: getting a lot of work in film and TV and okay. that was sustaining me. So I had a song in Twilight that was a really big deal for me. Great. I had um
0: 50% kind of thing or like like I mean or is it when you're writing these songs is it just you no, or are you was, writing with a friend uh, 25%. or 25%?
1: And
0: So you're writing you're doing normal sessions normal and sessions. some of them just end up on soundtracks that are selling 4 million copies. Yes. Amazing. And and it's your voice on it too. No? Sure.
1: Ish, I'm it's a duet and I'm one Very of the two. low in the mix. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's not like you're, you know, that's a still a number one album probably, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and you probably had a few cuts, but I think, were you at that point aiming for, yeah, I want a number one song or at this time you're like, finally, I'm free of all this shit and I'm becoming a woman who's on her own and like, I don't need to deal with these people you know, from my past and you're defining yourself and then all of a sudden the number one song at radio comes out, which I think wasn't even supposed to be the single and all the other things. <laughs> I, what? What? How does Jealous happen and what's your reaction to being on top of the world?
1: Okay, okay, okay. I was so grateful to just be in L.A. and be... And have sessions and have a good manager and have all of this good fortune that I had never had before. And I had fallen in love with my best friend and I had – I was surrounded by a community of incredible artists and I had people in my life at that point who really believed in me and supported me. I'd lived in a place that was clean and safe. I had a wonderful landlady. The sun was shining. I was in Santa Monica. I felt the ice in, from the Canadian winter that was deep in my bones, melting. Yeah was at a Grammy party. I met Nolan. Our managers put us together for a session.
0: Nolan Lambrosa, the producer. I had Sir a, Nolan.
1: I had a session. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dan had a, um, a consultancy at Island. He got me the session with Nick. He said, who do you want to do it with? I said, Nolan. Nick came in. We went out to the parking lot. We were sitting there and we were talking. And he said, he just opened up to me and said, I was talking about his relationship and said, uh, sometimes I like it when my girl gets jealous. Ah. There are moments that happen in our lives, Ross Golan, where the little beans that lie sleeping on the floor of our minds start to jump. Yeah. And dance. And he said that to me, and I said, that's what I want to write
0: about. Yeah.
1: And because it was true, and I believe in truth in art. Yeah. And I hadn't heard somebody sing about jealousy as a positive before. Yeah, right. And the minute that I said it to Nick, he we clicked. Right. And you, you know how talented he is and yeah. how talented Nolan is. Yeah. So he was like... Uh, Sure. And then we we wrote the song.
0: Did you know that this nope. were you were like, wow, this is a great song or I thought
1: it was solid. I thought it was a solid album cut and that I thought Nick and I would write together again and I was really looking forward yeah. to it. I had no clue that it was a life changing song.
0: Yeah. I mean that happens and when when they even even when they make it a single, I believe and I mean this in the in in the most positive way, it didn't get really good research. And it was like, but the fans actually really liked it, you know? <laughs> and the, and somehow it, it weasels its way up the charts. I mean, are you pinching yourself the whole way? Were there ever times that you wanted to, you know, call home to your dad and be like, hey, fuck you, I'm at the top? Or were you like, no. I'm enjoying this because, you know what, I earned this on my own. And I'm a, I'm a champion. Because it's, it's like, the odds, this is one of those things, you know, you're talking about. 40 songs at a time and here you have the one that's, that climbs up to the top that must have been just a giant weight off your shoulders
1: You know I didn't enjoy it that much
0: Really? Why? Because you just didn't I have trouble enjoying
1: it? things that I know are fleeting mm. Although and I know this, everything in life is fleeting
0: Do you enjoy it now?
1: Yeah, I probably enjoy it more in retrospect than yeah. I did at the time
0: the the best time. But for I just sp-
1: want to ring the bell again. I'm like all of us. Like sure. I just want to prove that I can ring the. I rang the yeah. bell once. Maybe I could ring the bell again. Yeah. How am I going to ring the bell again? Yeah. But you can't live like that. You have to focus on the process and enjoy the process and love the actual work that you're doing. You can't just live focused on hits. It's like a sickness.
0: The weird thing is when a song goes down. The minute it starts going down. Biggest relief.
1: (laughs) It's so funny because a
0: song starts doing well, and you check charts and you check radio charts, and you're listening to top forty, and you're doing everything you can to will this thing forward for longer, for bigger, hoping it's a copyright, hoping it's all Mm -hmm. these things. And once it goes down, oh, it was just a song the whole time, and it's like a giant release, and I and it's like I can look forward again. Yeah. I, when you go through the... I
1: don't check charts. I don't watch the charts. I mean, m- m- my manager will text me about them and stuff, but right. I don't I do not do that to myself. But yes, I agree with mean, I, I agree check the charts you. on
0: other people's songs. You do? Yeah, I wish I didn't. That's it's the worst. Isn't that just... It's a waste of time. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I was going to say that, but I want to be I mean,
0: I play video games, too. That's also a waste of time, but it's fun to, like, watch, like... I guess at least in that I actually have some some power in it when I go and I watch charts like I have no no stake in the game, really. I think I just tend to root for my my colleagues and my friends because I know that if they're successful, that's good for the community yes, and so, I love
1: seeing my friends win I yeah I,
0: te- I tend to like root that on, but I don't know I don't know why I do when i mean when you have songs that you know body say for for Demi and mm-hmm. Chainsaw, which is an amazing record for Nick, like um, is there hope wrapped in those songs coming out, or are those songs where it's like they're successful because they came out? Like, I love you, chainsaw, yeah,
1: I love that song, and I'm sad that it was never a single, yeah, me too. I think that once again, it's truth, and it's coming from the heart and I, I love that song uh, so, so yeah of course there's hope and disappointment wrapped up in it but but we have to focus on the things we can control and I have this beautiful memory of being in Mammoth in the studio with some of the best writers in the world and my friends standing on the furniture listening back to Chainsaw with our hands in the air
0: Yeah,
1: and that's the moment that writers live for And I think that that's actually a better high than having a number one even. That's what we need to focus on, is that beautiful moment of connectivity.
0: Yeah, speaking of which, you had a single come out today, so congratulations with Flame by Tanasha. Thank you. You have this ability to come in and hear things fresh and not be... um, uh, I get paralyzed a lot in that situation, because I just want to change everything and do all (laughs) things over. And... Um, and you, you come in with like a a freshness that, that freshens up the song in a way that I don't think I can do very well.
1: It's harder to fix a song than it is to write a new song. I agree. Yeah.
0: I mean, I spent yesterday, we spent eight hours in a studio working on a chorus on a song that we kind of like the melody and we spent all eight, eight hours rewriting a concept. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we got anything. Yeah. Versus how we start a song from scratch, maybe we'd have a song today.: One of the things that we do is we list I, I'll list five things, and I just want, want to hear the first thing that comes off the top of your head. Okay, okay. Sounds
1: like a dadaist game.
0: Yeah, I still don't have a name for this sec- segment, so I just talk about how I still have no name for this segment. Okay. But anyway,: Sir Nolan.: uh,
1: Okay. I'm embarrassed by what came up first, but it's, it's love. Yeah. I, I love him. He's my friend. I love him.
0: Yeah. Sir Nolan's an excellent producer who you've now done a number of records with. Yeah. He's a good friend of ours. We like him. Enrique Iglesias.
1: Challenging? He, um, he demands the best from you, uh, and he isn't afraid to push you until he gets it. Um, but he set the bar. And he set the bar really high.:
0: Justin Trudeau.:
1: Oh, I really like him. Uh, OK, but it has to be one word that No, you can do it,
0: everyone. I don't know. It's a, we, I really don't have any words. It's not like Pride.:
1: <laughs> no, I, I, uh, pride.
0: <laughs> Yeah, pretty cool. Leonard Cohen.: Worship.: Yeah. Just amazing.
1: He's the greatest. He w- was the greatest.
0: Right. That's kind of one of the cool things about music, though. I was talking to my mother-in-law about that, where it's, at least I know when I die, you know, I have a few ideas of how I want my my death to play out. But (laughs) I kind of want, like, I kind of want my friends to have, you know, um, first of all, no one should be sad. Second of all, they should probably play the songs that I wrote, not because of, like, an ego thing, but just because they can go and they can be like, oh, my God, when that, like... I think so much of our stories are are wrapped up with our lives, you know, and our... Some of our stories are wrapped up in the music that's going on in our lives at the time, and for a writer especially, the fact that you can you can play out your whole life. Like, if you want to know anything about me, just go through the catalog. It it'll tell you every step of the way what was going on in my life. When people say that you know that music is the soundtrack of our lives, it's like of your life. (laughs) You gotta be nuts, like you know, songwriters. It's like it's talking about you know I'm in a in a I was in a parking lot with Nick Jonas and Nolan Lambrosa and Nick's talking about sometimes he likes being jealous. That's a real moment in your life that translates into a song that everyone, that people around the country and the world can listen to and be like, oh, yeah, man, I have jealous reminds me of blank. But Leonard Cohen, going back to that, it's like he had this ability to really kind of capture what seemingly is a moment in his life, even if it took him six years to write that <laughs> moment, you know? Mm-hmm. People speak very highly behind your back. I think I text you sometimes and be like, I'm talking behind your back right now. <laughs> I think I might literally say that to you. Well, I know we kind of have to, to wrap up. But one thing that I wanted to say was that I said after the second time we wrote together, first time we wrote together, I don't remember, but I said um, that you're one of the best co-writers I've ever met. And at at the time you took offense to it a little bit. Because other people in your life had called you a co-writer as if that's a negative thing. And I spent my life trying to be a good co-writer because to me, a good co-writer is the best compliment you could possibly get. And the people who don't get that are missing the point and they never got it. And they didn't understand the value of collaboration and how hard it is to make your co-writers walk away with the best song that they have. I can't, I can't say enough how much I still don't want to revise it. I don't want to say you're the best writer I know. I know a lot of great writers, but I don't know that many good co-writers. And in this music industry, if you want to exist, it's because you can collaborate. And it means because you're a good co-writer. It means that you're, you're the one who knows how to make that artist or that fellow writer walk away being like that was a great day and that was a great song maybe it's a great song i don't even give a shit if it's a good song it's just it matters that it's a good day but you're an excellent co-writer and i refuse to let just because some people don't understand what that means and that offended you in the beginning hell no you're still one of the best co-writers i know and i can't tell you enough how valuable that is thank you for
1: saying that i've worked really hard to become the writer that i am and i think that collaboration is one of the most beautiful cures for the loneliness of life and i live for those shared ideas and moments of breakthrough and honesty and connection i mean i also live from my husband and my dog but i think a lot of writers live for those collaborative moments i think so too so.
0: That makes that makes it so you know I'd love for people to look at your all music or something maybe you wouldn't but I would <laughs> because it shows the div- diversity in the songs that you're able to write you know and and who you're able to write with and that I just I just think that that's the biggest compliment that that uh, I can give to another writer is that I think you are one <laughs> of the best co writers I've ever met so.
1: I'm just gonna write some hundred percent, and then I'll talk to you later.
0: I'll yeah, show exactly. You they, what's they, up. yeah, exactly. They they yeah, exactly. Go back to my bedroom and some songs. No, but that's myself. the thing. It's like like you said. Uh, we all of us have written songs on our own, and a lot of us have written songs on our own that have been successful. That is not. That's not the point. The point is that that's great. That's awesome. That's really that's that's being, a, that's being a songwriter and that's and I I respect that it's it's totally different It's a different game than being able to walk in a room with people who may or may not know you and walk away with a hit song that can travel the world in a matter of months you can't compete with that on your own maybe some people can but like it's not you know that's not that doesn't make you a better writer because you can do it on your own. It just doesn't.
1: Ross, when are we doing uh, your interview?
0: Uh Your podcast segment. Well, on that note, thank you so much (laughs) for listening And the Writer Is. Someday, Simon, you can be the interviewer. Yes, please. But thank you so much for for today. And um, let's go to some sessions and write some songs. Yes, please. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to Jeff Sparger, David Silverstein from Mega House Music, and Michael White. Here's a sneak peek of next week's. And the writer is. It it, it ain't me happened so fast that like it it blows my mind. I mean, we were just we were in a session with Kygo, and we kind of started something else that wasn't too good, and then. Brian picked up the guitar and started playing something and was going off of this melody. Andrew came in at that point, started tweaking, it, we started going, and then the melodies, it was just like we were on that chorus, and, and, and it was just magic. Like, it, that song needed to come out of all of us. Like, it relates to all of us in so many different ways that it's its like all of our story in one song, and it was, like, just this beautiful combination of, like, Fleetwood Mac with, like, just honesty and, and like... Uh, just that song was, yeah, that was that was a big moment for us. And I and I remember like the, when Kaigo came in the room and and listened to it for the first time right after we had written it. I just watched his eyes, kind of like okay, it just lit up. Yeah. Until next time, this is Ross Golan.